So he says in 1 John 2, 1, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John is writing to us, writing to the little children, which is anyone who knows Christ as their Savior and is born again, about three truths that we must know about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in regards to our fellowship. And in regards to our fellowship, these wonderful things about Jesus assures us of our fellowship. It's a good thing I'm not on camera right now. That's okay. You're welcome. Yeah, whenever you're running the camera and you've got a preacher that likes to run back and forth, that's always a lot of fun. So anyway, we're uh, we're looking at uh, Jesus Christ and what, and what he is to us. And this assures our uh, fellowship with God. And so the very first blank, he writes about Jesus Christ, the righteous, his, that's his credentials. We talked about that. Uh, Jesus Christ is righteous in his, in his very nature, his character. Everything he says, everything that he does, um, is righteous. Everything that he is, everything, everything about Jesus Christ, uh, he is righteous. That's why John refers to him as the righteous. In fact, he's, I believe, when I did the study on this, I believe he is the only one that is said to be this way. Uh, he is, he is the only one qualified, uh, out of anybody that's ever lived. He is the only one qualified to be the next following things. He reads, he reads about, he writes about Jesus Christ, our advocate, or his office of high priest. High priest is the blank. He's our high priest for the believer, and I think we looked at that last week. And it's not—he's not like he's a lawyer up there convincing God to keep us in the family. That's not what an advocate is, as far as the Bible is concerned. No, he is our high high priest. He's up there on our behalf, praying for us, interceding for us. Uh, no other person who has ever lived, who is living now, or who ever will live in the future qualifies to be our advocate in heaven. Uh, before the throne of God, only the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, uh, qualifies that. So that means no priest, no pontiff, no pastor qualifies for this. So don't let anybody tell you differently. Okay? Uh, finally, John writes about uh, Jesus Christ. The propitiation for our sins, here we learn of his, and this is your blank, provision. Provision for the believer. And this is the next glorious truth that we're going to look at concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So your first blank, where it says, A, the word, the word would be propitiation. Propitiation. And what I hope to cover this morning, if I have time, uh, is what it is not. Okay, I want to cover that first. Propitiation, what it is not. Okay, because there is a lot of, a lot of, um, I believe, misunderstanding in regards uh, to this word. Propitiation is not a word uh, that you're going to hear every day. 
right? Uh, when was the last time you heard Brian preach about the propitiation of Jesus? I know he has, but it's not often, right? Because propitiation just seems to be one of those words that rarely come up in conversation. Well, just the other day I was talking to Ron Casson and we were talking about propitiation. No, it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And honestly, if someone were to ask you, uh, what is what is propitiation? What does it mean? You know, c- could you give an answer? Or uh, you may be able to give an answer, but are you confident that, that it's the correct answer? All right, so propitiation is one of those words, um, one of those words that uh, you just don't hear every day. So on your study guide... In some of the modern versions of the Bible, the word propitiation is considered archaic or antiquated or out of date. And therefore, these modern versions of the Bible, they remove it or they replace it. They replace it with some other word or some other phrase. And, uh, of course, the reasoning that they do this is they tell us, well, you know, we got to keep the language of the Bible current with our times in order to ensure that the Bible remains relevant to our times. Uh, that's not a good reason to mess with God's Word. Because if you've read any of some of these modern translations, you know, you've got to scratch your head. Where in the world or what in the world? So on your study guide, words and phrases that replace the word propitiation are such as payment, payment is one word, or sacrifice, or God's way of dealing, dealing with sin, and so forth. So this kind of, this kind of concept, this kind of uh, thing is what they do. And it's more like they focus uh, more on the second part of 1 John 2, 2, uh, without really giving any regard to the context of the entire passage. All right? Uh, the context of this entire passage goes all the way back to, um, uh, well, all the way back to chapter 1 and, and um, verse 3. Because he's talking about our fellowship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. So it, he's, t- he's talking about our fellowship. He's talking about all of the, the subject of sin and our, and our, and our, uh, our um, attitude towards sin. Do you guys want a study guide? Our attitude towards sin. Thank you, Diane. I beat you to it. Um... And so what they do with these changes is they try to give you the sense of it. In other words, well, this is what God really meant. I don't want anybody telling me what God really meant. I just give me the words. Just just give me the plain words. Give me the plain words. And I think they fall short of what Christ as our propitiation uh, really is. So on your study guide. The English word propitiation occurs only three times in your King James Bible. What was the other word? The other word? Mm-hmm. Three times. There's a blank before that. Yeah, these changes may Oh, may have some application in regards to salvation, but in the context of fellowship, they they give uh, they fail to give adequate adequate usage. 
for this word propitiation. So adequate. So it appears three times. The first time is right here, 1 John 2, 2, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again in 1 John 4, 10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And according to Strong's number 2434, and again, I just do that because that's just what I do. You don't have to do that or anything like that. It's just something I I do. Uh, The Greek word is, I want to say halitosis, but I know that's not right. (laughs) It's halasimos or halasmos. Okay. I don't know if that's on your study guide or not. So the blank is, this is a root word. Uh, the next time that propitiation is mentioned, found in Romans 3.25. In other words, the word found in Romans 3.25 comes from this word that's in 1 John. That's what it means. And so Romans 3.25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That's important. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So according to Strong's, this is the Greek word, Haliasteron. Again, I'm not a Greek scholar and I don't know really the true meaning or the true um, defin- uh, pronunciation of the word. I was going to get to it eventually. Right? But taking these three mentions of the word propitiation, this is what we see. Okay, so this is on your study guide. He is the propitiation for our sins. He was sent by the Father to be the propitiation for our sins. And he is set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You know, maybe the reason why they took propitiation out is because it's so hard to say. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so is was sent, set forth. All right, so on your study guide. He is in that there is no other than he. He was sent, as in this was initiated, is the word, by the love of God. Initiated. And finally, he was set forth, as in God makes provision for this only through faith in the blood of his Son. That's why it's, it's, it's a provision. A provision. You know, First Peter, uh, and I don't think this is on your study guide, but in First Peter chapter 1, we have that passage where Peter writes in First Peter 1, 18 through 21, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ... As a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So it is through the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ that God has provided for us this propitiation. God has provided for this propitiation. That's an important truth to hold to. Okay? And I'm going to show you why. 
Uh, This is the meaning of the word set forth. That means to place before or to expose to view for all to see. For all to see. In other words, this is something that's done out in the open for everybody to look at, behold, to see. If you remember in John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he used an example from the Old Testament scriptures that even Nicodemus was familiar with. And he said, and this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3.14. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, have eternal life. So if you are familiar with the story found in Numbers 21, those folks who were bitten by the fiery serpents, what did Moses, what did God tell Moses to do? Put together a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, raise it up, and whoever looked upon that serpent was healed of the snake bite. He put it up for everybody, he set it forth for everybody to see. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is. Right? It's not a piece of jewelry you wear around your neck, folks. That's that brazen serpent that God has raised up for all the world to see. And whoever looks upon that in faith is healed of that fiery serpent's bite of sin. Okay, that's what he means by setting forth. That's what he means by setting forth. Now, going on, uh, both Greek words refer to appeasing or to expiate. All right, so expiate, what does that mean? That means to compensate. That's your first blank. Compensate. It also means to make amends or conciliate. And that's the way you hear a lot of times this word presented. But it also means to make peace. Make peace and resolve differences. And I like that. Because that is God's provision for us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 we read, Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So I like that making peace. Because that's what his propitiation does. It reconciles us to God. It is something that God has provided for us. And I'm going to say that several times. Okay? Several times. Uh, Again, you know, these concepts, you know, they can be seen in 1 John 2, 2. Uh, for the lost, their debt of sin is paid. All right? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Through Jesus Christ. All right? So, yeah, we see that. We see that 
that amends. We see that that being compensated. But at the same time, we see that peace existing between God and the believer now. And this guarantees our fellowship with God. This guarantees, and that's what we're talking about here. So a lot of people approach 1 John as though it's proof of salvation. No, it's how to maintain fellowship. How to maintain fellowship. Now here is where some uh, get derailed in regards to um, propitiation. Remember, it is God's provision for us. And so on your blank, or on your blank, on your study guide... Um, this term propitiation to the ancient Greeks was the idea of earning, here's your blank, earning the good, the goodwill of an offended God, little g God. This goodwill toward the offender not being, is your blank, this goodwill toward the offender not being a part of the God's nature in the first place. Uh, I'll talk about that. And therefore the God must first be appeased, is your blank, in order to motivate them concerning showing good will toward the offender. In other words, you would make your God angry, so you would have to do something to make him not angry at you anymore. Okay, the ancient gods of the pagans—they were a temperamental lot. I mean, if you know anything about Greek mythology or Roman mythology, or even even if you study the Babylonian gods or any of these gods, they were a temperamental lot, and they were either uninterested in man or they used man for the enjoyment. Like you know, they were competing against each other and using mankind as pieces on a chessboard. You know, if you read through Greek mythology, that's exactly what's going on. That's what, that's exactly what's going on. And they, and mankind was subjected to the whimsy of the gods. Sometimes they call this the fate of the gods. That's where the word fate comes from. Um, Islam believes in a fate. And if you look at it, Augustinian Calvinism also believes in a fate. So it's, it's there. And little wonder that these false gods were um, temperamental because who were these false gods in reality? They were devils. That's what they were. They were fallen angels who desired to be worshipped. Revelations 9.20, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Yes, this this is Revelations 9, folks. We're talking about idolatry in the 21st century. Oh, it don't exist. Uh, yeah, it does. It does. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.17 says, They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came up, that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. Just different packaging. 
You know, I worked for a major pharmaceutical company, and when a drug wasn't selling well, you know what they did? They didn't change the formula. They changed the packaging. They made the packaging more appealing, you know, more eye-catching. Oh, look at that. And they'll buy it. You see it all the time. You see it all the time. Now, um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but have you noticed how bold pagans are becoming in our nation today? If you're paying attention, they're becoming very bold. In fact, just, let's see, which way is south? That's north. South. South of us, uh, we've got one of the largest modern-day uh, pagan, pagan movement, uh, movements in, in, in the world. You know what that movement is called? Wicca. Just south of here. In fact, about a few years ago, I went down with a fellow to go witness down in that area, and we ran into witches everywhere that wanted to argue with us. They're everywhere down there. Uh, Currently, 1.5 million Americans identify as pagans or practice some sort of pagan uh, religion or rite. 1.5 million. Uh, It is. It, it, exactly. Exa- and a lot of people are just, you know, accepting it. Yep. Yep. Disney's really big on that. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Uh, so it's not really new gods that newly came up. It's just, you know, repackaging of the same thing. Uh, Wicca began to be practiced in America in 1960. So it's a, it's a fairly new thing. And guess who the main uh, proponents of uh, Wicca was? Your feminists, your environmentalists, and those who were upset with uh, what they would call mainstream religion. Right? So they wanted an unstructured um, religion or spirituality. So that's your flower children and your hippies and your new agers and that type of thing. Yeah. That's what that was all about. And the appeal is threefold. It's, first of all, it's, it's an individualistic belief system. In other words, you know, you can believe whatever way you want to believe. You can practice whatever way you want to practice. You know, nobody need, you know, your way is okay and my way is okay and therefore everybody's okay. How many times have we heard that? Right? Um, you don't have to agree with this set of beliefs or this dogma. You're free to believe any way you want. Uh, the second thing is those who practice paganism uh, f- uh, believe that it fills the need to draw meaning from chaos. And so some of the practices that they use is uh, what they call um, transcendental meditation, yoga, Yoga is another thing that they, they do. Uh, there's other spiritual disciplines that they, they exercise uh, to bring about a, a calming peace or to uh, uh, connect with your, um, your uh, inner core or your inner person. And that kind of reminded me of Proverbs 18, uh, chapter 2, uh, that says... Um, a fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. And that's what that's all about. That's what it's all about. Uh, discovering who, who I am. Uh, the inner me. And we hear that today. We do. We hear that today. 
Uh, and then number three, um, and you mentioned it, uh, ch- charms, uh, witchcraft, spells, um, you know, these, these little things that uh, they put into practice or they wear, uh, these crystals, anything that they believe will bring about uh, some sort of control over their circumstances. That's going to give them that energy or, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for through these crystals or these charms or, or anything like that. And this is becoming more and more popular, uh, because of, uh, what they tout as the, uh, climate change crisis. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, that moves a lot of people toward this paganistic belief, the, the, the wars and the loss of rights, and it's just gaining more and more popularity, more and more popularity. Um, being free to do their own thing, practice, you know, they can mix. This is something else about paganism. You can mix other beliefs, other religions. They can mix Catholicism in there. They can mix Judaism in there. They can... Anything. Anything goes. Anything goes. I looked uh, looked this up, and I didn't even know there was such a thing until I looked it up. But I don't know what this hashtag thing is all about, but uh, there's a witchcraft hashtag that has over 7 million posts. And then on Instagram, uh, TikTok, there's over 11 billion views. So it's, it's very popular. Guess what age group? Yeah, the 20s. The 20-somethings. In the early 30s, but mainly the, the, the 20-somethings. But it's getting close, folks. That, you know, why do you think 1 John 5.21 ends, keep yourselves from idols? Because it's going to be a very strong force toward the end times. It's got to be. Because who's showing up? <laughs> right? Who's showing up? Um, I recall reading a a story of a missionary in India who observed a mother with uh, her two children going down to the Ganges River. And she's going down there to make an offering. That's what they do. And one of the children she had was uh, definitely physically and mentally challenged, while the other child was very bright, very healthy. And uh, when the woman returned from the Ganges, she had the... The uh, physically and mentally challenged child with her, but the healthy child was missing. And so the missionary asked, well, what happened to your other child? And she said, well, I offered that child to my God. And he said, why would you do that? And she said, because my God would not accept this other child. So I had to offer him this other child, the healthy child. This healthy child. That's paganistic thinking. That's paganistic thinking. And um, it also permeates Christian thinking. It also permeates Christian thinking. So on your study guide, uh, not that Christians would offer their children, but the mindset, this is, this is what I want you to get, the mindset that the individual must somehow earn God's favor. 
to propitiate or appease God through the doing of good works or some other act of nobility or charity. That's deeply embedded in the minds of Christianity. Right? Uh, Let's make a deal with God. Or if I do this, will you do that? Or um, the fasting and the flogging. Anything, anything to win favor with God. That's deeply embedded in Christianity. It really is. Uh, this, this concept of God held by some of God's people and even by some denominations is really not different from a lot of the pagan beliefs in having to propitiate or appease an angry God. Not much different than the, the old Greeks or the Romans or, you know, these other pagans. You know, that's, that's a wrong concept of God that unfortunately is being propagated by many Christian teachers and, and such. Uh, that God is out of sorts, so you have to do something to make him happy with you again. That's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches, folks. It just is. First John four sixteen says, and we have known and believe the love that God hath to us. Right? We have known and believe the love that God hath to us. You know, we'll study about this when we get there. Uh, but right here we see that the God, that the God of the Bible's temperament toward His children is that of love. Is that of love? Not, he's not vindictive. Right? He, he doesn't get his nose out of joint and then you gotta go up and, and do something nice for him in order for him to even talk to you anymore. I mean, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 6, when he has to chastise his children, does he do it because he's angry? No, he does it because why? He loves you. Yeah. He loves you. He's a good father, and he knows that sometimes he has to correct his children, but he never does it vindictively. He does it from love. Even when you're chastised, it's motivated by his love for you. 1 John 4.16 continues, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So on your study guide... The reason why the temperament of God, for lack of a better term, is love due to the fact that the very nature of God is love. Temperament and nature. Again, the Father is not like the vindictive gods of the idolatrous needing always to be placated Vindictive and vindictive and placated, but rather he is a God who is light, righteousness, and love. That's the God of the Bible. So, on your study guide, the fact of God's nature is love does not negate any G A T E his being a holy and just God who will judge the wicked. All right. Now, also on your study guide, this is kind of a clumsy statement, but this is the popular message that we hear today from so many who live in darkness and practice darkness and preach that others may do so also under the pretext of God is love. 
Right, just like the pagans saying anything goes, there are preachers out there saying because God is love, then anything goes. You can live any way you want. No, you cannot. You cannot. God is not a mixture of beliefs, but he is a God of truth. And they that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. Right? Spirit and truth. And that truth is found in the word of God, not by some mumbo-jumbo... You know, the Spirit told me none of that stuff. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So on your study guide, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and his will is that none should perish, but that all should repent. Right? Sometimes you've got the, these people who picture God like he's up there with his big stick and he just can't wait. No, that's not him. He's a long-suffering God. Ezekiel 33:11 says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? That's God pleading for men to turn, to repent from their evil ways. That doesn't sound like to me a vindictive God just waiting to whack somebody. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I can testify to the long-suffering of God in my own life. I mean, I can look back now and, and see certain times in my life that he could have very easily pulled the plug. But he didn't. But he didn't. So on your study guide, if men do not repent, then God is left with no other alternative than to what? Judge them. If men do not repent, then God, he says, okay, then you leave me no other alternative. I have to judge you. Um, like the Israelites of old that failed to look upon the brazen serpent for healing. You know, if you fail to look upon the cross for salvation, if you choose to go another way, and the only way that God presents to us is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you really pretty much are taking, you know, what can God do? If that's the way you want to go, then what can I do? On your study guide, scorning God's grace, and that's usually, that's what they're doing. Scorning God's grace, they must then face His wrath. There is no other way to look at it according to God's word. Here, here is the gift of salvation. No, I don't want it, I'm I'm going to go this way. No, this is the only way, you've got to have this. No, no, I don't want anything to do with it, I want to go this way. Here, I've done everything for you, all you need to do is receive it by faith. No, no, I'm going over here. What can you do? I remember when we were going through counseling uh, training, uh, one of the instructors said, you can't force people to do right. If they're going to do it, go that way, there's really not a whole lot 
you or God can do. God respects our free will. If God says, if, you, if that's the way you want to go, then God says, okay, I respect that. Just be aware of the consequences. So on your study guide, because God is love, we can approach God without fear or with the need to propitiate or appease God because he is angry or out of sorts with us. In the next blank, we do not need to placate God so that he will accept us and then maybe not be so angry or mean to us. One of my favorite verses is found in Ephesians. I think it's Ephesians 1.6. We are accepted in the Beloved. We are accepted in the Beloved. We are accepted in Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him. Why? Because I first loved him? No. Because he first loved us. Yeah. So on your study guide. When these so-called archaic biblical terms are replaced with, okay, here's a big word, (laughs) nomenclature, yeah, nomenclature, N-O-M-E-N-C-L-A-T-U-R-E, nomenclature, in other words, the way they phrase things, okay, you guys are going to come out of here educated (laughs) with new words, aren't you? I just thought it was a good word to use. Yeah. There you go, vocabulary. We replace with nomenclature that do not do justice to the doctrine, then it is this type of mindset that begins to set in among God's people about God. Remember one of the things was payments? One of the translations of the new, mer- of new versions, instead of propitiation, it's payment. What is that? Wait a minute, i got to pay God? You see, that's where this comes from. That's why you stick to this book. Alright? So on your study guide. The biblical doctrine of propitiation is not the action of man that brings God into a favorable attitude toward man, but God in love acting favorably, is your blank, toward man and providing man the means of removing his offense dealing with guilt and remitting his sins he does it all for you he does it all for you folks 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a wonderful truth this is. What a wonderful truth. So on your study guide, uh, your first blank is propitiation. Propitiation is never to be thought of by a born-again Bible believer to be an act initiated by man 
but rather it is an act of God that he initiated by sending by the sending of his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. First John 2, uh, 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not just for a few, for everyone. The caveat is, you have to receive that by faith. That's the only caveat. Okay, what time is it? So, on your study guide. And that's why I've got these arrows up here. You should have green arrows. Okay. The Gnostic will always reverse the order of things so that man receives the glory rather than God. That is one of the indicators of Gnostic teaching. They will always reverse the truth of God. They will always call evil good and good evil. Alright? So if you're wanting to know if I'm dealing with a Gnostic, they, they reverse the truth. They put a spin on it. Okay? Uh, so on your study guide, it is God that has shown grace is your blank towards man based upon his love for fallen man and not man that has influenced is your blank and placated God to be gracious by some work that man has performed to earn God's favor. So shown grace versus influence. Alright, they're gonna, they're gonna teach you that no, we influence God to be kind to us. And I've got some proof on that. And that's the way of Cain. That's the way of Cain. Alright, that's what Cain was doing. Alright, instead of doing it as God subscribed, he was doing it his way, right? His way. He was presenting his works. So on your study guide, this concept of man earning God's favor is the foundation by which many of the world's religions are built upon. Uh, the majority of religions believe in some sort of works-based salvation. That there's always some pathway to appeasing or pleasing God in order to secure either their salvation or win favor from God. It's something that I must do in order to deserve God's blessing or earn my salvation. So I'm going to give you some examples, and I don't think I'm going to get very far here. Uh, the first example is Buddhism. Is your blank Buddhism? Uh, Buddhism considers ignorance instead of uh, uh, considers ignorance instead of sin as the roadblock to salvation, and believes that salvation or nirvana is the extinguishing of the fires owing uh, owing to that which uh, you know owing to that, that causes suffering in the world. So the three fires of Buddhism is aversion. It means being angry or hateful. Uh, attachment, and then the third one is ignorance. 
Um, when you extinguish these three things, then um, all suffering exi- uh, ceases to exist and you enter into the state of nirvana. But that's something you have to do. Uh, to reach nirvana, you have to follow uh, uh, n- uh, a, a noble eightfold path of Buddha. And that's what, that's what your Buddhists are doing. They're following this eightfold path. I'm not going to get into it. You know, that's, it's not of any value. Yes, sir? Uh, aversion, A-V-E-R, uh, attachment, attaching to physical, material things, you know, and then ignorance, which is spiritual enlightenment. All right. Now, according to Hinduism, your blanket salvation for a Hindu is called moksha. And moksha is the ultimate purpose of life and suggests multiple ways to attain it. Again, it's, it's something we do. Alright? Uh, moksha salvation is when an enlightened human being uh, makes himself free from the clutches of birth, death, and the miseries of life and comes into a state of completeness and this is accomplished through reincarnation. So you keep coming back, keep coming back keep, until you get it right. Until you get it right. Um, also on your study guide, when you do this, when you, you know, when you've completed this cycle, then you become one with God. And Hinduism suggests four major ways uh, to attain salvation. Four major ways is your blank, all based in a work of man, uh, the paths of knowledge through yoga, meditation, devotion, and good works, so forth and so on. So again, it's still, it's still the same thing. You work your way. You work, you work your way into heaven. Uh, Islam, the Islamic doctrine of salvation, uh, good deeds is your blank. Purify a person and results in his salvation. Good deeds. Uh, someone who is uh, an, uh, an adherent to Islam, uh, they can attain salvation through almsgiving, fasting, prayer. That's why they pray five times a day, I think it is, and... All of this is all of this is a, you know a works-based uh, salvation. Uh, on your blanks, um, Islam wholeheartedly believes that salvation is possible through the worship of one God alone, along with the performance of good works. So it's it's faith in good works, faith in good works. And then there are some Christian denominations. Uh, Catholicism. Catholicism teaches that faith and good works are essential for salvation, as well as the Eastern Orthodox churches, your Greek and Russian churches, they believe the same thing, so it's faith and works. Methodist is your next blank. The Methodist church teaches that after a man is saved and has genuine faith, his works are important if he is to keep justified. So, yeah, yeah, you're saved by faith, but then you keep it by works. You keep it by works. Uh, the Church of Christ and Lutherans is your blank. Uh, they believe that the combination of water baptism and faith are essential for salvation. This is termed as baptismal re- regeneration. Am I going too fast? Yeah. yeah. I'm looking at the clock. <laughs> 
next week because I want you to take your time. Okay. So baptismal regeneration. Um, of course, we know from God's word that, in fact, we're having three folks get baptized this morning. We know from God's word that what comes first before baptism. If you miss the blank, let me know and I'll tell you what it is. Okay. <laughs> we got a blank down here with nothing. I think that was an oops on the computer. It could be. Yeah. So we know that uh, what comes before baptism is salvation, right? Uh, that's what uh, Matthew 28, 19-20 outlined for us. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, you know, he says, What doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, do you believe that Jesus Christ... Yep, I sure do. Uh, the Philippian jailer, right? He was saved before he was baptized. That is the, that is the way it goes. That's why it's called believer's baptism. <laughs> Right? Believer's baptism. And as far as regeneration is concerned, in Titus uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, that's solely the work of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's His work, not my work. That's His work that He performs on those who receive Christ as their Savior. Alright? So on your study guide, and this is where we're coming to, Calvinism, according to Augustinian Calvinism. Now, I say Augustinian Calvinism for a reason. Okay. Um, Augustinian Calvinism, Calvinism based upon Augustine's teachings. Good works are evidence of true faith, and if there is this absence or lack of perseverance of good works, then there is no salvation. Okay. I refer to Augustinian Calvinism uh, because that's the, more, that's the more extreme form of Calvinism. That's your, your tulip Calvinism. So in other words, you can get saved, but then if you don't do anything good, it's gone. Yeah, if, there's, yeah, if, you, if you don't... Well, let's go on. Um, many Calvinists wrongly assume... Uh, Christians wrongly assume that the Calvinist theory of the uh, perseverance of the saints is synonymous with doctrine of eternal security. But it's not. It's not. Uh, The doctrine of biblical, uh, the biblical doctrine of eternal security uh, teaches that one who has truly been saved by God's grace is kept eternally by God's grace, right? Once saved, always saved. And that's, that's what we believe because that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, so God doesn't, hasn't left our eternal destiny to our ability to, pre, to preserve, to persevere. Okay? Otherwise, if you don't persevere in good works, then you're not saved. According to the Augustinian Calvinists. And I've got some quotes. If that were true, then that would make our salvation no longer by grace, but by works, wouldn't it? Alright, so John Calvin. Citing Augustine, that's why I call it Augustine, Augustinian Calvinism, because that's where he got a lot of his stuff from. He got it from Augustine. Uh, citing Augustine, John Calvin wrote, Those who do not persevere unto the end belong not to the calling of God. So if you do not persevere to the end in good works and faith, then you're not a part of the calling of God. Uh, what about the fellow on the cross? 
You know, what about deathbed uh, conversions? Uh, Calvin also stated uh, what they, and he's talking about the Christians of, at Corinth, what they had attained so far is nothing. Unless they keep steadily on, because it is not enough that they once started off on the way of the Lord, if they do not make an effort to reach the goal. So in other words, he's saying these Corinthian believers, if they don't stay true to the faith, then they're not really saved. They've lost their salvation. There is no salvation. A.W. Pink, he's a very staunch Calvinist. In his book, uh, Practical Christianity, Christianity Taught, and I happen to have that book, he says, if there is a reserve, is your blank, if there is a reserve in your obedience, you are on the road to hell. That's what he said. So like if Pastor Brian has something he wants for us to do and we don't do it, what does that mean? Or if the Bible tells us to do something and we don't do it, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Pink also said, this is also on your blank, he said, something more than believing in Christ is necessary to ensure the soul's reaching heaven. Something more than believing in Christ is necessary to ensure the soul's reaching heaven. That's Calvinism. Uh, he was in the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has a lot of commentaries. He's quoted a lot. I quote him. He's got some good stuff. But as far as this is concerned, yeah. So if you read him, you have to pick the bones from the from the meat. Um, a reformer, a reformed minister, John Otis, states that maintaining an unforgiving spirit will surely destroy our souls in hell. Maintaining an unforgiving spirit will surely destroy our souls. So if I've got something against Ron and I'm not going to forgive Ron for something he may have said or done to me, where does that leave me? Right? Right? In his book, again, A.W. Pink, in his book, The Doctrine of Sanctification, and I've got that book, A.W. Pink stated, Holiness in the life is such a part of our salvation that it is a necessary means to make us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in heavenly light and glory. So, necessary means. Um, Wait a minute. Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 says, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the Satan light, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and had translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So it's not my personal sanctification that makes me meet or fitting, but it's God's grace in salvation because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes me meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light it's nothing I do it's everything that God does it's everything that God does okay uh, alright let me go let me go this far and then we'll stop 
Calvinist theologian and co-founder of the Westminster Theological Seminary, I think this is on your study guide, Dr. John Murray states, uh, let us appreciate the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and recognize that we may entertain the faith of our security in Christ only as we persevere in faith and holiness to the end. So you have to persevere in order to be sure of heaven. So according to Augustinian Calvinism, perseverance in good works, faith and holiness to the end is, this is your blank, essential to salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's what the, not, that's not what the Bible teaches. And we'll have to stop there. Okay? John Otis? Yes? Oh, definitely. But not in the sense of losing your salvation. No. No, you're absolutely right. If you if you have a bitter spirit, if you're not being forgiving toward another person, definitely there are some dangers there to your growth in Christ and your everything, but it's not going to cause you to lose your salvation. You may lose reward, but you won't lose your salvation. Now, Jesus Christ is my guarantee of salvation. That's my guarantee. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, so 